2 Kings chapter 2. Now I'm going to start out right away with something that I need you to focus on. I need you to learn this. And I need you to bring it into your mind and let it govern how you study and read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Here's what I want you to learn. It's going to be up on the screen. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament's the New Testament concealed. The New Testament's the Old Testament revealed. Let me give you maybe a more earthly understanding of how to apply this. Let's say that I took you out to a really large field. And while we're out in that field, 400 yards away is a deer. And you and I, were standing next to each other, we're looking at that deer, and it's so far away, we, can, we know it's a deer, but we don't know if it's a buck, we don't know if it's a doe, and if it is a buck, we don't know how many points on its antlers. You can see it, but you can't really distinguish it. But then, while we're standing there, I hand to you a set of high-powered binoculars. And you put them up to your eyes and all of a sudden it's almost like you can reach out and touch that deer. You can count the points. You know if it's a buck or a doe. You can see it clearly. Whereas before it was far away, you know it's there, but you can't distinguish it. Now, now you can distinguish it. Now you can see it in a lot of its beauty and glory as a deer. The Old Testament is often like standing and looking at a deer 400 yards away. But then the New Testament comes, and the gospel in particular comes, and it puts up these binoculars, and all of a sudden, wow, that's what the Old Testament event was about. That's what that Old Testament person was really pointing to. Now I understand it. Now I can see it. You see, the people in the events of the Old Testament, even the obscure ones, even the odd ones, often point to the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to take a deep dive into the gospel. We're also going to see an event in the Old Testament that really is kind of a bit of an odd one, at least odd in the sense that not a lot of people are familiar with it. And we're going to see it from 2 Kings chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Kyle kicked off the series called Finding Christmas in Unexpected Places. He did an amazing job. That sermon, if you did not hear it, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's from Genesis 3.15. What we're going to do over the next four weeks, including Christmas Eve, which we hope you're coming to, we're going to slow down. And we're going to focus in on four miracles of the prophet Elisha from the book of 2 Kings. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin looking at it from 400 yards away. And then we're going to put the binoculars called the gospel up to our eyes. And we're going to see really how it points to the glory and person of Jesus Christ, whose birth we are celebrating in this season. So can I ask you to stand with me? We're going to read 2 Kings chapter 2. We're just going to read four verses together. But if you could all stand with me so that we can read. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. Elisha said, bring me a new bowl 
and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. You may be seated. You might be wondering, how is this going to point forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ? How is this going to, how is this going to show us the gospel? Well, we're going to let the light of the New Testament shine on this event in the Old Testament, and we're going to discover its significance. I've got three points for you. It's going to be the problem, the remedy, and the gospel. We're going to start with the problem. You might be surprised to learn back in the ancient days that there were actually seminaries. Seminaries are where pastors are trained. There were seminaries where people were trained to be prophets of God, pastors of God's people. The well-known prophet priest Samuel, you'll remember him. He served under King Saul's day and then a little bit under David's. He was the head of a seminary in his day. He was the president of the school of prophets. And then later, God told his prophet Elijah, I still have 7,000 prophets who have not gone away into false religion. And Elijah gathered them, and he became their teacher. Elijah became the head of the prophet school in his day. But then God did a remarkable thing. He came down, he sent down a chariot of fire. And it flew between Elijah and his star pupil, Elisha, separating them. Elijah climbs into the chariot, and the chariot takes him straight to heaven without ever dying. It's amazing. But right before the chariot came, Elijah knew this was his day, that he was going to go to heaven. He gave the symbol of his authority, his mantle. He gave his mantle to Elisha. And when he left, when he departed, Elisha became the president of the seminary. And there were more than one school of the prophets of God's people. And I want you to look at verse 15 because we're going to find a very unexpected location of one of the seminaries. Look what it says in 2 Kings 2.15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw Elisha. Jericho. One of the schools was in Jericho. An extremely unlikely place to see a seminary where people are trained to be prophets of God. By the way, what, does, what did the prophets of God do? Well, they did... Really, what Pastor Kyle and myself, Pastor Johnny and Pastor Tony do, and our elders, they taught God's word to the people of God. They guarded the people of God from false teaching, and they worked with and helped the people of God through trials and suffering. That's what they did. That's what we do. And here we see in Jericho a seminary, but it's a very unlikely place to put a seminary. Let me give you a little brief history of Jericho. It was the first city to be conquered when God brought his people into the promised land. 
You'll remember the walls came down, right? But after the walls came down and after the, the city was conquered, don't you remember what God commanded Joshua to do? I'll read it to you in Joshua 6. Cursed before, before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. The city is cursed. God put it under a curse. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. We just sang joy to the world. And if you remember that second verse, it talks about the curse of God and how the curse is reversed. When we get the binoculars up, you're going to see how this works. But later, under wicked King Ahab, we just talked about him in the Schemes and Victory series, he wanted the city rebuilt. You'll understand why in a minute. He hires a general contractor named Hile. Hile, 1 Kings 16, built from Bethel, built Jericho. Now watch what happens. The curse has its full effect. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn son, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord. Oh, he rebuilt the city, but he lost two of his sons in the process, just as God had said would happen. Did you know that Jericho, listen, secular historians and biblical theologians all agree, Jericho is considered the oldest city in the world. It's located in the Jordan Valley. This is a valley called the Rift Valley. It goes all the way from, the, from Jericho, basically at its head, all the way down into Africa. It's an amazing valley. There is a water that streams right down the middle of the valley. The Bible describes how this valley looked all the way back in Genesis 13, 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. And then he compares it to the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord. This is a beautiful valley. Jericho is in a beautiful place. It's like the Garden of Eden, and it has a spring in it, Jericho does. Listen to this. The spring, to this day, pumps out a quarter million gallons a day. And that water irrigates the entire valley all the way down into Africa. It empties into the Jordan River, which is six miles away. The prophets from the Jericho school, the, ceremony, the seminary, came to Elisha. And they said, verse 19, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. In other words, this place is idyllic. It is absolutely beautiful. This is the place you want to go to. This is why Herod built a vacation home here. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. So the area is beautiful, but God put it under a curse, and the water was bad. Now, if you've got your Bibles, don't do this in the pew Bibles, please. People in this church kind of like to mark up the pew Bibles. That's not really yours. But if you have your Bible, underline the word bad, and write in your margin what that Hebrew word means. It means evil. This is curse language. The water is evil. 
And the land is unfruitful. The city is under God's curse. The spring is under God's curse. And Elisha soon makes clear that it's causing death, it's causing miscarriage, both in animals, probably, and human beings, probably. And it's rendering the soil infertile, barren. It cannot grow crops. It is unfruitful. It is under the curse of God. It ought to be bringing back maybe some echoes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Because you have listened, Adam, to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is a ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the entire earth is cursed, and specifically Jericho is cursed. And this curse is affecting its water. That's the problem. But point number two is the remedy. Now, I want to point out something that is so subtle, we almost always miss it. The prophets in the school of Jericho came to Elisha asking for help. Now, let me put this in a way that maybe would make a little bit more sense. If, you, if I have a problem that I cannot fix, and I know that one of you can, and I come to you, that's because I am confident that you can help me with something I'm not able to do. This is faith. We're now nibbling at the edges of the gospel. They come and they are just demonstrating faith. They come to Elisha. We've got a city that is beautiful. Its water source is bad. It's causing death and miscarriage. We can't even grow crops. Elisha, we believe you could do something about this. And he did. Look at verse 20. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. You know, I, I, I know some of you know this, but we have people that are, you know, we're growing as a church. And so we've got people that are new and you haven't heard this. But I grew up in central New York, outside of Syracuse, in a little farm town. And when I was one years old, my father bought a hilltop just outside of the town limits. My dad was a contractor. He built churches all over New York State, houses, schools, barns. He began to build our house. He finished it when I was two years old. At two years old, they moved our entire family. I was the youngest of six kids into this new home. My dad brought the well diggers up. And at the top of this hill, they dug a well. And they had to go down pretty far, but they finally struck water. And the water that came up out of that pipe was sulfur water. Smelled like rotten eggs. Here's what I remember growing up. Every three to four weeks, my dad would go outside to the well cap, open it up, take a gallon of bleach, and pour it down into the well. And for about two, two and a half weeks, it muted the sulfuric rotten egg smell of that water. People ask me sometimes, you know, why are you so white? <laughs> I mean, isn't that the solution? The answer? Might be a little Irish. Is this what Elisha did? Did he just take the equivalent of some bleach and the salt and the bowl and throw it into the spring and temporarily fix the water? No, the Bible says, so the water has been healed to this day, verse 22, according to the word that Elisha spoke. But you know what? If you're a liberal theologian, if you don't really believe in the miracles of God, and there's a lot of them that don't, that's one of the ways you explain it, is that the salt treated the water. 
But we're going to find out in a minute, it wasn't just the water that was healed, it was the spring. And that gets us to a very important point. And I really hope you hear this, and I hope you understand my intent in teaching you this. The world will offer you, my friends, solutions that cannot get to the heart of the matter. Our problems, our addictions, our marriage difficulties, our issues with our children or with our parents, our failings, our sin is located, the root of it is located in our hearts. It's not just a behavioral issue. Sin is not just doing what you should not have done or not doing what you should have done. That's behavioral. There is a sin below the sin. The sin below the sin pulses in the springs of our hearts. And that sin below the sin is, I want to be like God. You do too. You want to be in control just like me. You want to be able to sit on the throne. We are comfortable when we can be like God. The problem is heart deep, but I haven't really given you the full knowledge that you need. I need to take you one step further. Now listen, it's from the overflow of the mouth that the heart speaks, right? If you have a problem with cursing and profanity and filthy jokes and slander and gossip, the problem is not your mouth, it's the problem is your heart. How do you get down there to the root of the problem? You've got to get to the heart, but listen, and this is really important, you are never, ever, ever, at the root of it all until it turns vertical between you and God. Psalm 51, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. You got to get down to the heart where it turns vertical. The problem is there is a disconnect between you and God, me and God. There is a rebellious war that we have between God and us. That's the problem. And the world cannot get to it, but the gospel can. You are at the root of your problem when you see its connection to God. And for Jericho, the problem, the root of it was the the spring was under, the city was under the curse of God. And the curse of God has to be dealt with if the solution, the remedy, was going to happen. And only the gospel can get there. And Elisha is about to show us not only how the gospel works, but why it is such a joy to slow it down in life and reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ. We've seen the problem. The problem is a poisonous, toxic water of the well, of the spring. We've seen the remedy, we've started to see it, and that is a new bowl with salt in it. But let's see the gospel. Here we go, ready for the first time. I'm putting the binoculars up to your eyes, and now you're gonna start seeing it a lot more clearly. Elisha performed a miracle. Now fix this in your minds for a second. Every miracle in the Bible shows you a glimpse of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it's more than that. And I've got to show you what the gospel really is. Look at this chart up on the screen. This is from Ed Stetzer. I did not create this, but I think it brilliantly captures an overview of the gospel. The gospel is four things. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation is this. Abraham Kuyper once wrote that every square inch of original creation was saturated with the glory of God. It was all perfect. 
There was nothing wrong with God's creation, including Adam and Eve. But then the devil came in, in the form of the serpent, it began to tempt them. It began to tempt them with this little, little desire deep, deep down to be like God. Eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were forbidden from eating. It was a test. God put it there as a test. Will you trust me? Will you be faithful? Will you have faith? And the answer is no, they wouldn't. Now, let me show you what happened. In the fall, let me put it in this way. Where's Pastor Kyle? Did you do a count yet? How many people are here right now? Do you know? Okay, so 143, that's pretty cool. There's 144 up at uh, Mark Street First Service. So 143, that's including me? Okay. Let's say that every one of us are climbing up an ice-covered mountain in the Alps. And Adam is at the base of it. He's the last one going up. And tied between Adam and the next person's a rope and the next person's a rope all the way up to the 143rd person. There's a rope that ties every one of us together. And all of a sudden, Adam slips and falls. It begins to, begins to slide down the face of that mountain. And his slide catches the next person by surprise, yanking them off their feet. And now the two of them begin to yank the third and the fourth and the 20th and the 100th and the 140. Third, every one of us are sliding down the face of that mountain towards the lip of a chasm where thousands of feet below we will be dashed on the rocks of death. That's the fall. We're all being pulled down there. There's no one untethered. There's no human being anywhere, certainly not in this room and not in the face of this planet, that was not tethered to Adam's sin. And we have all begun to slide. That's the fall. What's going to happen? God has a remedy. God has a solution, and we're about to see it. Do you know what the word Elisha means in the Hebrew language? It means, my God saves I would write that in if I were you. We're about to see the saving power of God as he redeems sinners through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says to the prophets, here we go, I'm putting the, the binoculars of the gospel up, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. What's a new bowl? Particularly, why the preposition new? What's that have to do with anything? It's a jar or a flask, but the important thing is, it's not just any common Bowl. It's a new bowl. It's never been used before. That's what gives us the word holy. The word holy means set apart, used only for one purpose, for God's purposes. That's what the word holy means. By the way, Christian, did you know that you're called in the New Testament a hagios, a saint? And a saint means a holy one. So the moment you were saved, you were given a new purpose, a new heart, a new mind, and now you're set apart for God's purposes exclusively. You are, as I am, the holy ones. He's got a new bowl, and he says, put salt in it. Why does he say to put salt in it? Let me show you in three 
uses of the word salt, why? In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, Moses wrote, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So if you bring an offering to the temple or to the tabernacle in that day, you have to bring salt with it. And the priest is going to put salt on the sacrifice and then burn it on the altar. Why? Because salt in its physical properties never breaks down. It's the perfect emblem, the perfect symbol of God's promises. They never fail. They never break down. And every time they offered a sacrifice, they were to put salt to remember God is keeping his end of the bargain. God is keeping his faithful promises. Listen, how many of you like to add salt to your, fe- to your food occasionally? Raise your hand. How many of you cook and add salt to your food in the recipe? Raise your hand. Listen, here's what I would encourage you to do. Listen, this is beautiful. Every time you pick up that salt shaker or that container of salt, stop for 10 seconds and remember this is the symbol of God's promises. They never fail. They never break down. He is utterly faithful to you. He is utterly faithful to me. Bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. And he throws that salt into the spring, into the water. And it's healed. Do you know what happens? The curse is reversed. Do you know how the curse is reversed? Well, hang on, and I'm going to tell you that in just a moment. Remember, the New Testament's concealed in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament's revealed in the New Testament. I'm putting the binoculars up so you can see the gospel. The toxic water of Jericho is a metaphor for the ruinous, sinful desires that live in our hearts. The new bowl is a metaphor for Jesus The salt is a metaphor for Jesus. And Jesus begins to show us all the way back through Solomon in Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Listen to the language. For from it flow the springs of life. You hear the the springs metaphor? Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The problems in our hearts. Jesus says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The gospel begins to show us the problem in our living is in our hearts. And if our hearts are going to be healed, the curse has got to be reversed. How, though, does that happen? Look at that chart again. And this time, look at the third word, redemption. Do you know what the word redemption means? This is beautiful. I only have time to give you one use of it. It means to be bought back, to be purchased. But in the ancient days when two armies would battle against each other, don't don't listen to Hollywood. It was rarely the way Hollywood makes it go. The goal the goal of your army was not to kill every person in the opposing army. It was to 
destroy enough of them where they would give up. But you wanted to keep as many alive as you could. And even you would go through and take the wounded and you would nurse them back to health so they wouldn't die. Why? Because this is your money. You're going to write to the families. You're going to send a letter to the families of every soldier captured. If you want to redeem them, if you want to buy them back, if you love them, you want them again, you've got to pay a ransom price. And you fix the price that is going to purchase them back. So if you want to redeem that person, you've got to pay the ransom. That was the cash cow of a military endeavor. You wanted to make money. Jesus bought us back, but how? Well, can I go back to 143 of us sliding down the face of the mountain, just about to the lip of the chasm to our certain death? In fact, Adam goes over. He's still tied, as are all of us, to the rope, but he goes over. He's pulling everybody with him. But there's a 144th person. You can only see him with eyes of faith. And he's at the beginning of the, movement, of the line. He's at the top of the mountain, and he ties himself to us. He tethers himself to us, and he digs his ice axe in, and he stops the fall to deaths. For any who will believe in him. And he grabs that rope and begins hand over hand pulling the entire line of believers back up over the lip of that chasm, back up the mountain to sure footing and refuge in him. That's our Redeemer. That's redemption. It is the fall, but it is God who had a plan. And as Kyle said last week, that did not, the fall did not catch God by surprise. He had a plan that he put into effect. And here's the plan, Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Go back to Jericho. There's a curse on Jericho. How are you going to reverse that? Well, Jericho points forward to Christ. Christ has to take the curse on him. He has to suffer the effects of the curse. He has to die. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's the only way God can reverse the curse is by putting it on to Jesus' son. The moment you believe in him, the moment you have faith, just like the, the prophets in the seminary of Jericho came in faith to Elijah, the moment you come to Jesus, he goes down deep into your heart where the poison and toxin of sin was ruining your life, and he heals you heart deep, and he gives you a new heart, he gives you a new mind, and he sets you apart for new purposes. And the Bible says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cries out in the city of Jerusalem, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me a drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. You see, out of Jericho's spring, one, one quarter million gallons a day flowed toxic water that was killing people and killing the land. 
But then Elisha takes a new bowl that points to Jesus, takes, a, takes salt that points to Jesus, throws it into the spring and heals the spring, not just the waters. And to that day of the writing of that passage, out came waters of healing. See, that's the true lesson of Elisha's miracle in Jericho. It points forward to the time when Jesus would come. Look what Galatians says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you get the binoculars up? Did you see the new bowl? The points to Jesus. Did you see the salt? The points to Jesus. Did you see Elisha? The points to Jesus. Did you see the well, the spring rather of Jericho? The points to sin, and the healing of it. The points to the new heart, out of which flows living water. Well, what do you do with this? I'm going to end in about a minute and a half. But what do you do with this? Can I offer you a suggestion? And I would ask you to take your phones out and take a picture of this slide that's going to be up there. Here's what I would suggest you do. Every day over the next four weeks, would you find a time to pause? Maybe it's your lunch break. Maybe it's early in the morning. Maybe it's in the evening. Would you find a time to pause? Slow down. You can control this. The world wants to push you into a frenetic, over-busy life. You can control this. Pause and read with the binoculars on. Read through the eyes of the gospel, the word of God. And reflect on it. Ponder it. Consider it. Turn it at different angles. And then worship the coming of God in the form of a baby. And remember the reason for this season. That little baby would grow up and the curse would be laid on him. But it's the only way that he could stop the fall of all of us into the death that sin brings. And stop, he surely did, the moment you believed in him. Pause, read, reflect, and worship. If you do this, you're going to be surprised how often in the word of God you will find Christmas in unexpected places, just like we did in the middle of Jericho. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the lessons that we learned today. Father, I pray that they just echo and echo. Lord, do not let up. Let your spirit speak these words deeply in our hearts. Let us pause let us read your word through the binoculars of the gospel. Let us reflect and ponder on it, meditate on it, and let it move us to worship the coming of God in the form of a baby who would grow up to take the curse on himself to save us all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.